Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Marcus Thomas. And I'm Oz Arshad, and we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help you bridge the gap. Welcome back. Me again. Us again, I suppose. So, the response to the last episode has been amazing. So, thank you, everyone. We've had ridiculous amounts of engagement. It seems that you all really, really wanted to know how to make a movie at Film 4. Thank you again to the lovely Amy and your responses on social medias and privately. Please do keep sharing. We're a brand new podcast, and so all that stuff is gold to us. So this week we've got an amazing, amazing production designer on. I don't know why she got involved, but she said yes. So we're going to speak to Jacqueline, or Quellin, <laughs> as we like to call her now. This did start off as a regular one of our conversations where we tried to dig down into the craft and it just somehow turned into a conversation around artistry instead, which is probably way more interesting, but very, very important because everyone you work with on a film set at a high level is going to be an artist of some description. So we get a great sense of that within this conversation. So without further ado, is it a do? A do? Without further ado, a do. Without further ado, here's the episode. Hello and welcome back to the director's take. Today we've got an exceptional guest as we often do. So Jacqueline Abrahams, originally trained in fine art, specializing in performance and live art. She worked as a scenic painter for four years before moving into design, where she has worked to design feature films, shorts, TV dramas, theatre, performance and live art. She has experienced working with scripts on improvised pieces and with artists in a less conventional context. She has designed productions that have large ambitious studio set builds, completed location-based work and has experienced working with very strict budgets too, which is always good. And she won a BAFTA in 2009 for Best Production Design for TV Series Wallander was nominated for a BAFTA in 2010 and won the RTS Best Production Design Award in 2010 also. Jacqueline's notable credits include TV series Wallander, Diary of a Cool Girl and the original series of Top Boy in feature films such as the Beefer winning The Look of Love from Michael Winterbottom, The Lobster by Yorgos Lanthimos as well as Lady Macbeth by Willie Moldroyd and His House by Remy Weeks. So Jacqueline Abrahams, Welcome to the director's take. Hello, nice to be here. Thanks for coming. And just before we get started, do you prefer Jackie, Jacqueline, Quellin? What's the yes. Wellin, can I have that? Quellin. K W E double L I N. That'd be great. Quellin. Quellin, right. Jacqueline is normally how I go, but that's still there. Cool, we'll go Jacqueline. So, first things first, very, very simply, we start off very simply here. what is production design and what do production designers do? Well, um, what I think is this, and remember, it's only my take on it. I can tell you what I'd hope to do and then I can tell you how, I mean, if I've achieved it at all. What you hope to do is create a world that supports the script so that the viewer, directed by the director, will believe the characters, will believe the story and the story is completely supporting. So whether that is... Uh, a hyper-real world, whether it's a hyper-realistic world, it doesn't matter. You can turn your hand to any style, but the key thing is that you create a world that allows the story to happen without any sense of, hang on a minute, what? I think when you're watching a film and you go, 
what? You're out of the film. So I think the key is to be absorbed immediately from the get-go. And so I think production designers are involved with that world. And sometimes you read a script and you are very much just, you know, the script describes exactly where you are and exactly what's happening, the color of the walls and the this. And it can be interesting because sometimes you can disagree entirely. <laughs> so I think that's a really interesting world to discuss when you're, you know, you don't necessarily agree with the writing of where it's set. And for me, the key thing is you need to not doubt the characters. So how do you create a world where that is absolutely, totally, 100% trusted? And and with that, um, it also ties into a bit of a listener's question. Could you explain the difference between set decorators, art decorators, and production designers? Um, wow. Some guests- actually, actually oh. Marcus, uh, Marcus, just before we go yeah. into that, I just want to just come back just on that opening question, um, Jacqueline, please. Looking at the psychology of a character, do you look at it like it's the extension of that world so that the audience are immersed in the character, or is it different from piece to piece, that it's not the psychology of the character, it's not expressionism, it's not that? Is there, is there, is there a set approach that you have when you start to I think that's that? an interesting question, and I think it is always about the character. Because essentially, we know that, that you know, it's a bit like the Emperor's New Clothes. We know that J.C. Riley is not really Henry VIII or whatever the, you know the role is. Probably very good at that, you know. But so, how do you create the illusion that he is? And so, already you're dealing with a kind of very kind of cross-wired reality where we kind of go, well, we know we, it's like a kid when you go, you know, frighten me, frighten me, and the person scares them. It's like mm. you know this is happening. You're aware of the device. You're aware of the artifice of it, but you still need to believe that there's a credible kind of world. So for me, it always starts with character. And, to, uh, you know, and I think that is quite subtle and hard. And it's not, it's sometimes real, but it's sometimes invented. It's sometimes a curation of ideas from various characters. But, you know, it's like if you've got like a hoarder, the characters are hoarder, you know, why are they hoarding? It's not just like, let's fill the room with stuff. It's like, what is the stuff they're hoarding? And actually, mm. There could be a propensity to go, let's have really unusual things. So you go, wow, look at the set, look at the amazing things I've ordered. But to me, it would be more about what, where is their anxiety and why is it there? And therefore, actually, mm. maybe they're just hoarding paperwork. Maybe their compulsion is to print everything out because they're afraid they'll lose it or they don't trust things. So they have to have hard copies. And then what if they lose that hard copy? They need a duplicate. And then well, maybe I should have a triplicate because just in case. So it might end up visually not as interesting as creating the world of unusual objects, but it becomes then more more kind of interesting psychologically. This sounds a weird thing to say. Maybe you're aware of this. I'm always aware of why they choose a certain shot from the film or the poster. Mm. Mm. One has to be very careful as one is crafting the design of something, not to go, oh, that's the poster. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like you have to fight this kind of iconography, the film iconography, and somehow, somehow find, keep finding the truths, keep finding the anomalies, keep finding the contradictions. And I do think there is a very important discussion about ugliness and beauty because we're drawn always to visual imagery that's attractive and compulsive, you know, compulsive and sort of iconic. But we also need to embrace that which is us, which is disappointing and ugly and discordant. What's interesting is, you know, it's, it's been a it's been a big week for cinema this week, and you know I'm I'm sure most of the country's been to the cinema for several trips, and I watched Oppenheimer the other night, and you know in the in in some of those silent moments, your eye, hundred percent darts around the screen, 
off the subject to look at the world that they're in, to look at and appreciate the other... Obviously, I'm not looking at it, you know, I'll look at the productions and I'm, I'm looking at it as in, like, that's the world that the character's in. But, I mean, it's interesting because it's like I was talking to someone recently who's showing me some footage of some project he's been working mm. on and it sounded really interesting. I looked at the imagery and I said to him immediately, gosh, isn't it a shame the searing wasn't lower? And it, it, was, just, it was a beautifully crafted piece of historic drama, you know, Beautifully made. I mean, exquisitely made. Mm. Crafted, constructed, painted, propped, everything. But I looked at it and I thought, well, isn't it interesting? And I'm not saying I'm right. All I'm saying is my response immediately to it was, if this is about authority and and abuse of power and oligarchies and sort of oppression, wouldn't it be interesting just to make sure that the ceiling is always there so there's a compressed space that makes you feel weird as a viewer? And there are filmmakers that have done this brilliantly, like the Chazelle, is it the Chazelle Brothers? What was that incredible uncut gems? Oh, um, that was yeah, relentless yeah. in terms of sound. It's a relentless, brilliant, beautiful film that just makes you sick to the skin until it ends, and then you're like, oh my god, that's incredible. And so what I love about it is they have taken a taken a character, and they have just ramped up the inner workings of that character's mind in every way they can. Yeah. And it, it's such a brilliant example of filmmaking, actually. Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty exceptional. And it's interesting that you're saying that it comes from character is how you inform yourself because I think people see filmmakers as the people like potentially a DAP or a director when actually like every person in, in like these creative roles are filmmakers. It's just you're approaching storytelling through a discipline within the overarching discipline, I guess, of filmmaking. So I really like that. You know, I absolutely think of myself as a filmmaker. It's like to not have a discussion with me about something just because I'm what, like involved in a set. It's like, what? that's kind of weird. But, you know, I, my, I started in theatre and theatre is incredibly collaborative. And as a designer, you do costume and set, you're so closely involved with the process from the, from the beginning that to delineate and sort of, I understand why it's done, of course, on massive productions. There's just no way you can have all these conversations because of, you know, the brand, the time, you know, the control. I understand that. But I think what's interesting, I'm involved in the project at the moment at its very early stages and literally yesterday met with director, writer, producer, actor. Mm. And that is so unusual. And yet it's not unusual in film school. Mm. It's really unusual in, in you know, my experience so far of the industry. It's like, what a joy. So as we discussed the idea, there's no script yet. There's just an idea. And you're kind of going, well, as we discussed the idea, I had done research and spent a couple of days doing research and I'd come up with a thought as to where this needed to be set in order for us to allow the performers to pretty much pull anything out the bag. It's a bit like, I remember doing a theatre piece with a young group of like people in Hackney, and I do dis discuss this with the direction. I said, "Look, it was anarchic, and people sometimes rocked up for rehearsals. Sometimes they didn't. It was quite chaotic." He was amazing, and I learned a lot from him in terms of just be open to what happens and don't worry if people don't turn up or they turn up late. and And I said to him, "I think responding to you and how you are with everything, which is incredibly open and flexible." Maybe we should set the whole thing in an attic because if we set it in an attic, no matter what they throw up, we'll be able to pull a prop out the bag because attics are where you store everything. 
Mm. And so what was interesting about that decision was, as the piece developed in its erratic, bizarre way, we were literally able to just accommodate the creative ideas. And so for me, it was a real learning curve of come up with thoughts and ideas about this thing in order to allow it to happen. And obviously that's quite unusual. It's not scripted. It's with a group of youth who are acting and, you know, that's different. But it's quite an interesting process thinking, well, what if you met earlier and discussed stuff? I'm sure there's projects where that happened, but I've just not been part part teacher having those discussions so early on and it's brilliant. I think that's, brilliant. that's really cool though. Is that like, I mean, first of all, the attic, the attic anecdote, I think, speaks to being creative within restrictions and ultimately finding something within that. Yeah. yeah but that yeah, yeah. certainly is how I would inspire young filmmakers. And not even young. I mean, this kind of idea of young. Yeah. Any yeah. filmmaker that is making work without funding or without, you know, much money, right? I would definitely say, you know, you need to audition places in your city. You need to mm. find places that are interesting. And then you, what you need to do is you need to start. I mean, this sounds like a really annoying thing, but... I remember Jan Demange on the first, we did Top Boy together, the first Top Boy. Mm. And I remember us being in Dalston, I live there. So I was like, look, these are the places I think are amazing. There was like a snooker hall. There was like a brilliant barbers. There was like all these amazing spots. But, you know, they have their culture, their thing. They're not mm. necessarily just going to give you their, all that they are, the richness of their history, just to kind of leech your show off. So he, I remember him going into this barber's, the All Nations Barber's, which is now sadly closed down, became a cafe, I think. And um, he basically pitched the, the job. I mean, this was before anyone knew about Top Boy. Yeah. He pitched the job and said, I really want to film in here. And I never forget him pitching the job to them. And I thought, you know, Jan has done a fair amount of stuff. He's a confident filmmaker, but my God, I love the way he did that. He basically told them what the story is with such passion and such 100% belief, he wasn't faking. He really believed in the project as all of us do. Mm. And they said, yes, you can fill in here. I love wow. that. You know, it wasn't just like a location manager going, going, hello, hi, yes, you know, blah, 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 and this is what you'll get. This was very much about going to places that had not been filmed in and saying to people, trust us, this is an important piece. Please trust us. We will not show this place in a way that you don't know about. We'll be very transparent. and." You know, it gave it a richness. It's bringing it people it such into a the process, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But also, you as a director or a writer or a director-writer, can you do that? Mm. Do you believe in your project that much that you can go into a place and say to people, I want to film in here. I'm going to convince you to let me film in here and here's why. There must have been an ethical element to his pitch in order to honour the way they were going to be portrayed as well. 100%. I guess. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, he's in tune. He's a hmm. French-Algerian. You know, he's got a really interesting mixed background of his own. Hmm. He, You know, I remember him talking about himself within the film industry and culture. And we talked a lot about culture and stuff related. And, you know, I think I think he's an amazing human, you know, before he's a filmmaker. You know, he's an amazing human with a passion about telling stories. And, a, and therefore, he was able to do that. And I think that's a really beautiful thing we did that in so many different environments you know because a lot of them were places where when this is great should we go and have a look and then you know you're saying to the kurdish turkish guy 
yeah, can we film here? Yeah. It's like, well, I don't see why not. What are you going to film? What's it about? You know. Your work was brilliant on that, Jacqueline. Really was. Top Boy. I mean, I wasn't conscious of being a filmmaker back then in 2011-10, but I do remember when I saw that, I became so conscious of how it had been crafted um, and how it was different to everything that I'd got on. That was a, a, a yeah, tremendous piece of work. I hadn't seen anything that like that at that point. Yeah, it's yeah. tremendous. And you know what's interesting about that was also, I think, the relationship between, here's the thing. I think it's really tough to be a director. I really do. I think it's a very hard job. And I think it's not encouraged to talk about how difficult it is because people would just go, oh, that's fake. You know, come on. Mm. You are on the line. You are expected to deliver. You're expected to come up with creative ideas. You're expected to lead. And I think you're also expected to take risks and you want to take risks. So there's an expectation of what you, of you, that then you have your own personal pressure of what you want to create, what you want to come up with. And so I think you need people around you who can push you enough, but know when to retreat because maybe that's not the right time or something. You also need people that can, yeah, encourage you to take risks too. So I remember us having a discussion about where the estate was. And we had both talked about the beauty of films like Jacques Odiar's filmmaking. Mm. And, you know, I, I always think, I mean, I always think this secretly. I, there's a number of filmmakers I have where I go, what would Jacques Odiar do? <laughs> How would he, what would he want here? Yeah. <laughs> How would he film this? Because I think his work is extraordinary. Yeah. And and I remember thinking, why are we settling for a thing that feels super familiar to London? Why not try and find something that feels like like the Parisian, the Parisian neighborhoods mm. are quite phenomenal. And I thought, if this was in Paris, where would you film? What would it look like? And so we stumbled on this estate, which was just beautiful. And I remember we had quite a conversation about it, you know, and I was like, we've got to think bigger than this familiar territory because the familiar territory is important for certain things, but this felt it was sort of like a, I don't know, it was bigger in its ambition maybe. Yeah. So, you know, there's something interesting about the relationship between people, you know, and I think good directors will go, that's not, you know, they kind of essentially go, that's not good enough, think deeper. And good designers go, do we want to accept that? Because you know what? When you watch the thing, it's too late. You can't do anything. Yeah. So you need to have this, these conversations and this kind of a freedom to try and make mistakes and say things that sound stupid, you know. And if it all becomes too professional and too pressured too early, no one's going to have the guts to go, do you know what? I don't like this place. It just feels really boring, you know. I think that's a good note is to, to, to get out as early as you can with your HODs and see places. Cause I think for me, like I write as well. I reach a point in my writing where I'm like, I can't even write this anymore. It's, it's pointless. Like I need to go through pre-production to put it through people's heads, to get out on locations or like get into sets and make it real. Like rather than this abstract ideas, which doesn't really reflect time. Like you kind of need to get out into the real world and yeah, bring, bring a sense of reality to it. And then it's through that, which it kind of becomes what it's supposed to be, like it, it goes beyond yeah. your attention. And we are like kind of weird sort of anthropologists really, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, I feel like sometimes we're kind of looking through a microscope and going, look at them, look at, oh, look at, and look, that one's deposited those, oh, that one's eating <laughs> that one now. I wonder why it's done that, you know? Yeah. It's like, but without a interaction with everyday life and knowledge and people and stuff, it's just a kind of approximation. Mm. So I suppose that's why it's interesting that, you know, and I, I definitely feel many directors say, 
I want to film in a real place. Mm. Mm. But actually, maybe what they're saying is it needs to be authentic. Yeah. But mm. of course, the questionable authenticity is very complex, isn't it? Because essentially, it's written often by someone that is not of that social group, or you know, yeah. like it's written in a, in a laboratory. I guess it comes, you know, for me, the authenticity comes from the script. I mean, that has to start mm. with the script, doesn't it? Mm. Well, this is good. We're only on question one. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's too easy. Like when when you're when you're up against deadlines and timelines, and you're just kind of in the midst of prep, you kind of you can lose sight of all of this sort of stuff. But this is ultimately you are creating art, aren't you? Like it, this is what you need to cling on to when you've yes. got all of the outside pressure and. And I think that's why it's a difficult job, like as a director or as as the, yes. uh, the HODs, like because you need to cling on to that and, and have a handle of the business to kind of block the business out from the process. Yes, and you know the thing is, I think what's really important is to, like you know, we all need each other. But I think when certain areas get top heavy, that's not beneficial for the production. So you know, I've often joked with people and said, you know, well, when I make a model. Should I put a model of the unit base as well? <laughs> it annoys me that all of a sudden you're kind of going, well, where's the unit base? You know, where are we going to put the Winnie Bagans? And you're like, hang on, I thought we were making a film. You know, couldn't the actor walk across a car park? I'm sure if you asked them, they'd be quite happy to walk across a car park to make the film that they really want to do. I mean, I don't get why a lot of that happens. And You know, it is really interesting because when you're in other countries, we just mentioned a bit before, it seems very different. So there's clearly something different about things here. You know, yeah, some people can't walk across a car park, but it's all right for some crew to walk three miles to go to use the toilet of those poor cabins because the ones next to them, that's not for them. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that goes on. It would, it would be cool to kind of um, circle back a little bit and, and talk about your journey into, into filmmaking. Uh, so, yeah, if you could give us like a bit of a top line about how you got into designing in the first place and did you have anyone along the yeah. way which kind of pushed you in that direction i mean maybe just a short amount on this because the most important i think the most interesting is talking about the genre isn't yeah. it but i mean mm. you know i mean because it's super interesting already talking to you guys about so you know less far but i was really fortunate in that my education was free before um the tories made it not free so mm. that makes a big difference because i probably wouldn't be a designer now had i not had mm. uh access to fine art education I mean, now I wouldn't pay to do fine art. There's no way. Why would you do that? Mm. I mean, even me as a creative person, I'd be like, I wouldn't do that. It's an irresponsible financial decision. <laughs> no one is going to make those decisions. I mean, this is what's really, you know, the, the elephant in the room is that if you charge people to study, they're going to pick the things that are lucrative later on in life. They're not going to pick the things which are about risk-taking um, or just not knowing. And I've got to say... In fact, if you if you said to me, "What do you miss?" or "What do you what are you nostalgic about?" I would say the joy of not knowing. Mm. I mean, of course, none of us know what's happening in our lives. I mean, I mean, God, I'm sat in my dad's house in a very different life that I had last year. You know, but mm. I I think what's a joyous thing is to be open to what happens. Mm. And now, of course, people feel that that's not possible because everything's so costly, including their education. So I was really fortunate. I did a fine art course where. There was virtually no, there was virtually nothing going on at all. It was like you rocked up and you had a studio. If you made work great, if you didn't, well, that's up to you. 
And, uh, you know, there were some lectures on hand and occasionally we had visiting lectures. And I remember Neil Bartlett coming in and doing a production, which was absolutely brilliant because I was really interested in performance art. And that's what I sort of specialized in because I didn't like the idea at the age of like 19 of making something substantial when I didn't really know anything and hadn't lived any life. Mm. So to do something that was more entertainment stroke drama stroke art was totally, I mean, ironic performances about being human kind of thing was where I was at. So that was brilliant. And that made me go, God, I love doing live stuff. I love doing, yeah, it's also quite risky to kind of look, you know, you're performing in front of people. That was quite scary. I quite liked it. But then I left and didn't, I just had enough of art. I was just like, oh God. It's just what's the point? What's the point of it? Because I was too young. Mm. I didn't really lived any life, you know. And like when my mum died two years ago, the only thing that helped me was poetry. And this sounds so annoying. I sound like an absolute arsehole. But if you imagine the enormity of grief and the enormity of losing someone that you love, mm. how is how are you? How is that going to make you feel? How are you? How is it? Oh, don't we? You'll get over it. it you know, it takes mm. time. This is not good enough. This is absolutely rubbish. Yeah. Or people that just can't talk to you anymore because it brings up their own fear of their own death or their own sadness at their own loss. And I'm like, so I sort out poetry and Beckett, you know, people that basically are able to, they're not fearful of dealing with the enormity of being a human in all its colours, you know. It's so interesting that, um, Jacqueline, because... Obviously, today is the morning after, you know, the news had broke that oh, you know, the iconic Sinead O'Connor has passed away. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, obviously affected her was the grief of, of her son passing away, you know, 18 months ago. Obviously, I'm not drawing any conclusions to, you know, her death or anything like that, but the enormity of grief clearly affected her because she said it several times. And it's not, um, it's not just as simple as you're saying, you know. But I've- I think you can kind of be drawn to to art and things like that. It's because it's a way of expressing mm. what is unexpressible, I guess. And so it, yeah. can't, it it allows you to contextualize it in some kind of interesting way, doesn't it? Do you know the other thing is, I think it's aligned to beauty. And I don't mean beauty as in visual beauty. I mean beauty as in the transcendent experience of being moved by something. So you go into nature and you are in a forest or you're in a park or you're I don't know, and you are moved by this. Mm. And you're not 100% sure why you're being moved, but you are. And of course, now psychologically, there's all sorts of studies and you even put a picture of the landscape in an office and people are happier and all this sort of stuff. But to experience nature and to be in nature and to experience art and music and film and poetry, this is all the same world. This is the world that is super important as human beings to be able to tap into, express and feed from. Mm. It's definitely a bigger conversation to be had about arts funding because I think that's a part of what we go on about here, the lack of a pathway. There's like a a competition lottery aspect to getting funding for shorts in this country and competitions aren't talent development. There's, I think, between shorts and long form, there's kind of no actual like development where you have space to fuck up Mm. at all um, because there's so much pressure on each thing. And I think the danger is that people drop out of the industry who are more than capable of being a part of it. Yeah, and I think there's an also a massive problem with like exactly you say the talent thing because it's like the competition thing. It's like, well, who's judging it and what do they yes. want? And so yes. what? What if I want um, a film about I don't know if I want a film about a young gay woman, 
and, and then there's brilliant films that aren't about that. Well, then what does that mean about the other films that aren't about that? And why do you want the young the young gay woman in your film? Well, because I need to tick the box in my thingy mm. about that. And yeah. it just feels really strange. Mm. Looking at some of the films at the LFS, I watched a bunch of MA films and they're all just brilliant. And I'm like, where are these filmmakers going to go now? Yeah. Mm. What is going to happen to them? They are brilliant short films, literally brilliant. And I would guarantee that anyone that's come up with, you know, and, and made this incredible thing and pushed themselves through it and motivated all their crew and team and stuff, is like, what happens next? Mm. So I guess, you know, for me, what's interesting, and you talk about production design, Forgive me for saying this, but I, I sometimes wonder, do we, do we need production design? I mean, do we need all this stuff? I mean, you know, what's interesting is when you look at dogma, the, a whole dogma thing, yeah. you read their list of what they will do. That was generated by a desire to make films. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't want to make the films and you have to do all the, well, they've got to get that and the funding for this and the funding for that, how do you make the film? The film doesn't get made. If, you, if you've seen Holy Spider, Ali Abassi, have you seen that film? No, I haven't. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's an amazing film. It's an amazing film on every blinking level. I don't know how much production design there is in there. I don't really care. I mean, you could say, well, there isn't any, there is some. Who cares? The film itself is so brilliant. And if there wasn't any production design, I kind of love it more because I would then understand that this was a film that was made under duress. I think they had to, the, the main actor dropped out, and I think it ended up being the producer that took on the role. It became, it was a very difficult film to make because of the, what, what it was talking about and where it was filmed. And so, in which case, I'm like, my hat goes off even more because I know then it was done under duress. Mm. You know, there was a brilliant film called Wedding Night. I think it's a Turkish film, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's, a, it's from quite a while ago, and it's about um, a man who has an arranged marriage with a young girl. And it's about this, and you think you might you might think of oh I oh no I know what that's going to be, but it's not at all, and it's exquisite. And you could say, well, again, where's the production design in that? It was a film called Full Pan. It's interesting you mentioned Dogma. Um, I had my producer over last night because he's he's doing a different a short film with someone else, so he passed by my house last night, and I was saying this to him. I was saying, look, I said because there's no funding in art, and because there's hundreds and hundreds of people trying to get a pot that's for two people. I said, we're going to have to move into that sort of like dogma movement. I didn't say it as that, but now you mentioned it, where you have to use what's around you and you have to tell the story around whatever's in the frame and, and, and work like that. And be, and even if it costs you 500 quid to get a few people or 200 quid or whatever, that is what you're going to have to do. Otherwise, how else are you going to be able to show you can do the thing? But also, isn't it interesting to think about, I mean, I think Last Montreal is a freaking genius. I really do. Mm. I mean, my, my opinion is, the type of films he does are always so varied and so interesting, mm. and I feel he takes so many risks. And if I think of Dogville, that was a bonkers, brilliant film. <laughs> I mean, and it makes me think, well, isn't it interesting if you had a cartoon, right? So if we were doing a film that was a cartoon, you wouldn't think anything of going, right, well, I'm just going to draw, yeah, he's in the Siberian uh, gulag, right? And now, mm. he, now he, um, his, he grows wings and he flies off and now he's in New York City. Okay, and now... Now he becomes a she and then she goes under the water. You're just drawing it. You're not thinking anything of it. You have the freedom to do anything you want because you just draw it. And I just thought, well, you're making a film and you can't do that. Well, how do you actually do that if you can't do that? I mean, maybe you draw it on the floor. Maybe you have a title card like in a Charlie Chaplin film and you go, we're now in. You know, or you someone showed me that all spice advert where the guy's going, 
I'm on a boat. Oh, yeah. Look at me. Look at me. I love that. It's so funny. Yeah. I mean, what if you do it like that? The actor goes, no, I'm not. Wait, no, I'm not there now. I'm here. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's like <laughs> there is an invention and inventiveness that's been slightly lost in filmmaking. Mm. What is wrong with doing a film where you play around with what you have? And if you can't do the VFX, well, maybe you somehow work out another way of doing it. I mean, this is about the invention because of the problems, because of the restrictions. Mm. And so I feel like I saw a student film and it was brilliant. This guy had basically gone sent back to China because of COVID. So he was going to make a film. He had all the stuff ready and he had the, they had the sets, they had this, they had the other. Just like now with the, the, the strikes, you know, they had it all ready, but he had to go back to China because he was afraid he'd never be able to go back. So he flew back. He's then in this house with his family and he can't make his film. So the film he makes is him with his phone trying to find his student film. It's brilliant. Mm. And you know, his family are just like, what's wrong with you? Mm. Uh, what are you, why are you filming? Stop, what's wrong with you, you know? Mm. And he's trying to find a film. And what he ends up doing is finding this beautiful film which explores how do you come up with ideas with such restrictions? And so he finds a strange beauty in the monotony. That's what people connect with as well, right? Is when it comes from these real places. If you overthink it, that might be the sort of thing where you'd be like, why would anyone find my life or this situation interesting? Whereas like, mm. if, you, if you take the time to explore it and throw it out there for the world, there'll be so many people who aren't dealing with that and it will kind of open their eyes to what that looks like and they will find it interesting. But what's interesting to me is, what is film? You know, what, what is film? Well, it's many things, isn't it? It can be many things. But if film and filmmaking only really settles on a certain type of filmmaking, then you're only going to get a certain type of film. And for me, I feel like when you see the cinemas and they're all playing the same stuff, and it's very rare to see anything independent now because the independent funding is really, really tricky, it, it makes me think, God, you know, like, maybe this is a kind of interesting time because maybe this is going to be a time where people reconnect as filmmakers to what it is to have a voice. Why are you saying what you're saying? Taking responsibility, thinking deeply about it, researching it profoundly, and then choosing how to actually make it mm. so that others can enjoy, laugh, be angry, whatever, be moved. There is a kind of place for another type of filmmaking, which is not necessarily production value-led, but mm. very much story-led. There's an art museum near my house. It's really weird. I don't even know how they've got funding, but there is. So obviously we flock to it. And they had they were playing an Eric Roma film called oh, The Green Ray. That's amazing. I, I, when I was watching it, they played it in a hall and a projection and the seats weren't good. So I was constantly like moving because just because my lower back wasn't working. Oh. And one of the things that so I was always conscious of, of, of what was going on, I just felt that they're just capturing the life of this one person going through the kind of grief of a breakup. And that's all it is. There's no bells and whistles here. It's literally that. It would make a boring treatment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not going to win you funding. No. <laughs> and I just found, I found it, I found it fascinating. I mean, Eric Roman's seasons is very similar as well. Yeah. Like, and, and, and you're right, Jacqueline, like, maybe this is, you know, we are on the kind of precipice of, because, you know, literally funding is going to disappear. You have to find another way. I mean, you know, I, I think it's interesting to seek out films and understand what, what it is about them. Like, I constantly talk about this film, Tool Pan, which I think is an amazing film. 
is about a guy that's, you know, basically he is, there's an amazing shot of him on the motorbike with his mate. They're pl- driving through this tundra and dust and he's falling in love with this girl that he really hopes he will be able to ask to marry him because if, you, if you're not married, you're not going to survive because that's how it works in that culture. You know, your wife is someone that supports you with the animals and the yurt and the this and the that and the other. You really need them. And he's just on the back of this motorbike with his mate who's really excited for him. And he's just mm. going, I love it here. And all there is is dust, literally 360 degrees of dust. And you're like, oh, my God, I don't know this guy. I'm never going to go there. I've got nothing in common with him. But I love this man and I feel for him. And I, mm. I'm totally drawn by the drama of it, you know, by the mm. story. And I think film is such a blinking, powerful medium. Mm. If you imagine you go to a gym, right, and you go and work out and you try and get whatever muscle is to, you know, be bigger and balanced and whatever, the idea being that, you know, okay, aesthetically you might look good, but essentially you're going to be stronger. I feel like, where do we get to work emotionally? Where do we get to work out emotionally? Well, in our everyday relationships, well, I'm a screwed up person that often makes big mistakes, you know. Whereas when I watch a film, I get to somehow go through all those things safely. Imagine I'm the characters, I can flip between different protagonists. And when I come out, I am enlarged emotionally. Mm. Films are really, really powerful. I mean, truly powerful and life-changing to the point where they're in me. Mm. I am now... I now have an aspect of that character in me and that predicament in me. And I have a final cabinet of responses that may include some of the things from that film. They do enrich me as a human yeah, in a way that just living my own life might not. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I hear that. And I don't think you can really quantify the, the impact it has on people. Uh, and I think also just the impact of being in like a community of people that are sat in an audience experiencing the same thing together whilst you're going through yeah. that to know that actually it's okay to feel whatever you're feeling and experience whatever you're experiencing right now. Um, It's quite normal. Mm. Um, I don't know how else you Mm. get that. You you kind of can't if you've got your headphones in and you're watching on your phone somewhere. And also I think the scale is really important. I think one needs to see a thing bigger than you. Mm. If my thumb can always come in and just press things on and off and pause, the power balance is is not not right. Mm. I think it's really important to see things large. You know, I want to be the speck but because our culture is always putting us as the big thing, mm. whereas actually we're not. We're the little things, and that's important to see that. You know, like I remember once at a, a college, someone wanting to build. They said to me, "How do I build the White House?" Mm. <laughs> as a designer, they like, "How do I?" I said, "Well, how much money have you got?" <laughs> <laughs> and I think they had like a couple of hundred quid. You know, and so basically, I said to them. So I have to ask you, you you want to build the most one of the most iconic and documented rooms with a couple of hundred quid. Is there something else you could do? I mean, what is the piece about? Hmm. Because if you want to try and recreate the White House, that's going to be problematic. I mean, the drapes alone, you know, what lens are you filming on? I mean, for a start, I mean, maybe one can discuss how you're going to film it because that could help if you really set on doing the White House. How can you use lenses to help you? Mm. But if you are set on doing it, fine. We'll kind of try and work out a way. But and I question why you want, why do you want to build the White House? And the the mm. the end of the conversation was something along the lines of, well, because it would look great on my CV that like I'm this and pulled it off, and you know. And I thought, but that's a real shame that the pressure of later meetings mm. 
is now affecting the films you're making now. When yeah. this is the time to experiment with who you are and what your voice is, not to try and do what you think is an industry standard. And that's where we were saying about like the the importance of having the freedom to explore why that's necessary is because I mean clearly this person is caught up in earning money in the future. That's not what it's about. It should be about being as present as you can be. And actually, I think creativity. I mean, you know, I think it's a mysterious thing, creativity. Mm. I mean, I really do. And if you were to say, well, you know, how do you come up with ideas? I'm like, wow. I mean, I don't know. I mean, mm. certainly coming up with ideas is easier if you're not worried about your future. Mm. I mean, certainly it's going to be easier if you're not worried about what you're going to earn and the interview when you get this and how you contact those people. This is all a fog that gets in the way yeah. of just listening. And parting feels like actually creativity comes when you're a bit quiet and you allow yourself to listen and maybe you'll hear some ideas or some answers or some thoughts, you know. That what you just said there, Jacqueline, that reminds me of you, Marcus. What's that? Of just of just of just listening to your inner self. Oh, oh. Just, yeah, like a lot of know. my great ideas come from in like when, when I'm in the shower because um, <laughs> I have like clarity of thought because you can't do anything else other than just yeah. be in your own head. And so there's many times where I'm either like caught stuck in an edit or something, or like there's something which isn't quite fluent. Like you know you know there's a problem, but you don't know what the solution is yet. And then like literally you just have a moment of clarity. And you're like, oh, that's exactly what that is. And then you go and do it, and then it's solved. So like my most recent film that I shot, that I knew that the last two scenes didn't work or we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do what we needed to do. Um, and I was trying to find what that, what, what that was ahead of time. And I remember like I went back and it was, it was honestly from about like 9 p.m. till about 2 a.m. It was like I was downloading. I almost like I wasn't moving or anything. It was just like I was just being thrown everything all at once. I was just sat there just like taking it all in. And then from that, I solved the issue. It was really, really strange. Um, and it comes from like what we were saying about like, where does creativity come from? It's like, I've got no idea, but it felt like I was when, downloading something from somewhere. Um, and it was just like telling me exactly what needed to happen. Um, but it comes from sitting in a quiet moment away from the stress of everything else. And also, don't you think it's about acknowledging fear? I mean, I think so much of life is about acknowledging fear mm. and understanding mm. what you're afraid of. And for me, I think creativity, when I, when I went and did a foundation, when I, when I left school, I went to do a foundation in art. And I got into a university and I was so angry because my dad had opened the thing and said, oh, you're going to university, you're amazing, you're so proud. And I was like, no, I'm not. I was like, it was just like really anarchic for no reason. I mean, like, I was just angry and anarchic. And I thought, I don't want to do that because that's what's expected. And so I ended up scrabbling about trying to find a, something to do. And my art, my art teacher said, well, go and do a foundation. So I went to Leicester and did a foundation. And the first thing that happened was we did a, we did some drawings, like a new, some life drawings, there's a new to figure and you're drawing. And the guy, I remember the lecturers walking around, there's a whole bunch of people, no one knew each other. And he said, great, great, some really good drawings, really strong drawings. I can see some of you got some real skill here. And I can honestly say, embarrassed to you, that I thought my drawing was really good. I did. I thought this is really good. And he went, right, let's tear them up. Let's tear <laughs> them up and move on. And I was like, what? And I thought, I don't want to tear this up because it's actually a really good drawing. Mm. And he came over to me. He was really a nice man. He came over to me and said, he said, you know, the thing is about creativity is there's always more if you trust it. But if you don't mm -hmm. trust it and this is the best you've got, 
Mm. And he just left it open. And I realized, fucking hell. And I tore the picture up. And of course, it was a really important moment. I mean, you could say seminal moment, but not. But really, I've remembered it till this day. And actually, my creative journey is not just about that. It's about discovering stuff, right? Mm. Discovering a voice, not just creating something pleasing that people go, well done. Yes, very good. That's nonsense. So um, I think the, the question of creativity, and this is a very important thing, and I, I suppose one needs to know what it isn't or what doesn't nourish it, because maybe one doesn't need to know where it comes from, but maybe one just needs to know that won't help. <laughs> you know, mm. Doing that is going to crush it. Doing this, not a good idea. Trying to build the White House, not such a good plan. You know, you know, maybe, you know, something else. I mean, if it's about power, your story, make a miniature model of the White House and have the actors interact with it, film it and project it and have their big hands coming in. Have someone sit on the chair, and make it out plasticine. I mean, make it something interesting about the gods playing with the humans and about power. Mm. That is something else, you know, but allow yourself to come up with ideas. And then go, does this feel right? Because essentially, if it doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. Weird, isn't it? So many people talk about their gut. Yeah. You know, gut feeling. It's a real thing. And I'm like, it is a real thing. It's a very real thing. It's just like we we just don't know what it is. It's because like science can't tell us what that is. So we just dismiss it. But it's a very real thing. There's many times where I've kind of gone against my gut because you listen to people around you. And then later on, you've, with more knowledge, you're like, oh, I I was right. I just couldn't articulate that at the time. And it's like, you just, yeah, it's, I think you absolutely should trust it. Yeah. Like when you, if, if, if you look at a piece of work where you've, you've gone against your gut, it always irks you, doesn't it? When yeah. you look back at it like, damn. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's on you. It's really interesting what you're saying about creativity there, Jacqueline. You know, saying that, tear it up. It's also that it, it also read to me as in like not being too precious on it as well, because we can become fixated mm. about one piece of work and putting that pressure on it for it to be a silver bullet and hit the bullseye. But you know, it's really interesting because like I think it's a complex. I think it's a complex industry. I mean, like you know, talking to you guys just now, you realise it it is art, but it's also mm. business, and that in itself will obviously make for a uneasy uneasy relationships occasionally that's not how could it not and it's also about entertainment and you know if there's entertainment involved then there's an audience and then what the audience's expectations i mean and that's shifting and changing it has done since covid you know has done since all the portals and streamers and living indoors and blah 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 and perceptions of who we are and how we're living and what we need to reward ourselves and you know all this kind of stuff is now in us as an audience i think it's quite complex you know but for me mm. i find it also interesting that you know i can read something and go i really love this and i'd really work, like to work on it and then of course as soon as you hear about the budget you realize mostly the things i love are like very small budgets so why is that mm. you know how is mm. that possible why is that you know and i'm not saying i'm not saying for a minute i sound like an arrogant ass, but i'm not saying that the films that have budget aren't that but there is something aligned to risk-taking, the audience expectation, and budgets. And so the irony is that when people start off, they don't have money. So they cut their teeth on things that mean something to them, that possibly are a little bit risky in terms of subject matter and or storyline. It made them on threepence hate me. They get picked up, and then they get given something bigger to do. 
So it's almost like the industry standard is that there are people with great ideas and great ways of making films, but unless they're able to hold on to their autonomy and their ideas, they can end up doing something that might not be as close to what they started off at. You know, and there's ways of doing stuff that may not necessarily be what we have at this point. You know, and I mean, we haven't even talked about AI. You know, like you've got AI that's going to take on the idea of the script and write it without giving any money to the writer. I mean, that that doesn't make any sense. That's yeah. just like plagiarism. But I mean, what is interesting to me about AI is that it doesn't know what it's doing. So there isn't an understanding. It's just rote going through stuff and generating yeah. stuff. And so I think, well, okay, philosophically then, what am I as a human and do I know what I'm doing? Because if AI can write faster than I, and if it can plagiarize much better than anyone can, but it doesn't know what it's doing and why it's doing it, then I as a human must know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Mm. That is something that doesn't seem to be programmable. And thank goodness, because you know the, the anomaly of being a human and being drawn to doing things is something that is inefficient and irrational. You know, why do I do what I do? Why am I doing this? <laughs> it's hard to know until you've gone through the process of doing it though, isn't it? For, for me personally, like it's only when I've made something, I look back on it, I'm like, oh God, that's exactly what that was about. <laughs> Whereas when you're doing it, you might think it's one thing, but actually for the process of making it, you might realize it's it could be about something else. Do you think there's a, optimum, like for example, is the optimum that you understand sooner why you're doing something. In terms of a process, a creative process, would you say that there's an optimum to... I am trying to not be the critic, I guess. So like oh. what I've kind of realized is that like, I think people ask about what is this about? What are the themes? Blah, blah, blah. blah. Like I don't really like that sort of line of questioning. I think that is a separate process to creativity because I think when I'm, when I'm like lying in bed and downloading shit, I'm not thinking about what it all means. You're just kind of taking it in and doing it. Well, and so when I'm like writing stuff, I'm doing, I'm trying to preserve that. I'm just trying to preserve like the wave of inspiration and then well, trying hmm. to just get through it and not overthink it and then worry about all of that stuff afterwards and apply the logic afterwards to kind of shape it within the rules of cinema and things like that. So it kind of lands a bit more, but yeah like i think all of the the trying to figure out what it means that's that's a process i usually go on usually when i'm there on set ish or like you're kind of discovering it and definitely more so in the edit because you're literally like you have what you have and then that's when you're being really analytical about everything what everything means what these well, two images could mean together yeah is is what i tend to find i think that's really interesting you can only sort of like aim in a direction but you can't you can't mm. aim at a bullseye like when you're making something. I don't think you can kind of. But you see, isn't that interesting? Because that I th I relate with that 100. percent And I think even you know, no matter what production you're on, I think the the reality is you don't really know what it's going to be. Mm. And that, depending on how you are supported doing the production, can be a source of great stress or not. Yeah, yeah. So if there's a sense of we understand that this is a process and we understand you are discovering that, definitely comes from the director you know, and the support that the producer gives the director. Mm. If the director is able to be a person that can go, I don't know what this is yet, the premise being yet, you know, 
then the whole thing is about a discovery. And I agree with you. It's like, I don't know what the piece is. And the irony is, could one suggest, like as a designer, one has interviews, right? And one pulls together a whole bunch of research mm. in order to get the job. It's not just about that. It's about your vision of the piece and your history and hopefully you as a person and whatever. And you get the job based on your the reference that you present. And hopefully it chimes with the director and producers, etc. And so what's interesting to me is that what if you didn't do that? You know, what if you didn't do that? And somehow, of course, someone has to trust that you're going to be the right person for the job. But what if you just did the job, started the job mm. and discovered it along the way? Because what's interesting to me is that if I read a script, I will then search for things that seem to speak to me about the script. But I'm also aware that there is a behavior about the tone book mm. and that, you know, the tone book needs to have a certain formula to it. It can't just be random images because the random images certain directors like, but most of them are like, well, what, what does this mean? What's your idea about the piece? And I suppose the interesting thing is, well, what if you're not sure? You know, is there a space for being not sure? Yeah. And then how do you sell that? <laughs> it, it's, that's very difficult to do. So I'm not saying, again, I guess I'm not saying I know everything and I'm, I'm right and it's wrong and right. But isn't it interesting that what you've said is you discover it yeah, yeah. And I think I think creativity is about being brave enough to know you are committed. You're committed to the project. You're not going to walk away. You're committed. You are going to discover it. You have confidence to try your absolute best, and you will be resilient and like a terrier, and you're not going to let go of it. Mm. You now have the responsibility of this cre- this creature, mm. and you're going to nurture it. I think it's that, and I think it's the confidence of of the discovery and I know Marcus we both spoke about this on the shorts we've recently just done about because we're a little bit more experienced and we've got a bit more confident there is a probability of discovery when you're going through the collaboration so you walk into a space you know you've, you've set everything up and the serendipity is going to happen and, and allowing yourself to just like be, be, be taken by that wave and be like actually is if there's if there's a if whatever the beats are if, I, if I'm truthful to that I don't I don't know what it's gonna fully end up being, but if I'm truthful in the details and the small bits, this should technically come together to be something truthful. But I don't know what what that is, and I think that if you've got confidence to be like that on set, you know I don't, I don't mean necessarily in a TV job because you know you are you are confined by what you've got to deliver. I'm talking about on your own work. Mm. You know, then you can create in inverted commas magic. Well, the alternative is like you, you define on. something really heavily ahead of time and then it, it's mm. sterile. Mm. I mean, you're, when you're there on the day, you're ignoring what's in front of you. You're kind of, you're, you're stuck with a document. You swear, you swear, square yeah. peg, isn't it? Brown yeah. hole then. And it's like... Do you know what? I'll tell you a story. It's so funny because I remember working on a project in Athens and uh, it was brilliant. And I was working with this guy who was an ex-ice hockey uh, instructor. So he, he was lovely, brilliant guy. I'd met him in somewhere else. And I said to him, because we're in Europe, I said, do you want to come and help me do the show? And he was like, absolutely, yeah. He was brilliant. Zero, absolutely brilliant guy. Anyway, there was this last location and I, I didn't quite know what I was going to do. I'd propped everything. It was all in a van, you know, rocking up. And I delivered it all, but then I'd had to have a go, go and have a meeting with the director. And uh, Zio texted me, said, hey. So he said, look, I'm, where are you? And I said, I'm just caught up in a meeting. And I'm, he said, well, I'll dress the set. And I was like, ah! What? And it was so funny. 
I was really upset by the fact that he was going to dress the set, but I wasn't able to discover what it was going to be by just rocking up and going, what is it going to be? Could it, could it be this? Could the bed be there? Could it be? And when I got there, of course, it was absolutely fine. It was absolutely fine. And he was just the opposite of me in every way. He was like, look, it's a hotel room. The bed has to go there. There's no other place for it. That's true. He's right. But I, I suppose I was kind of balking at his method. He's like, there is no mystery. There is no, this is how it is, right? You don't have to overthink it. This is where it is. And I thought, oh, why am I so upset by this? And I thought, because I don't want to feel like there is no magic and no mystery and no discovery. Yeah, I get that. Relate um, with that. Yeah, no, 100%. Weird. 100%. Um, I've got a question actually about, because um, it would be it would be good to know when you get brought onto a project, what are the first conversations you, you have with the director? What does that look like? And what what are you kind of looking to glean from that? The key thing is to, as, as a designer, the key thing is to understand what's in the director's head. I mean, that, you know, or, or not even definite things, but things that are important to them about the piece. And I think the conversations about what it is, where it is, mm. the bigger conversations are the ones that start. Because meanwhile, you're setting up an art department and you've got conversations about that. You want to start getting going on things because there's the machine of production, you know, as in producing of items. So I suppose it becomes about research and reference to start with, definitely. Mm. But it then become mainly it becomes about going to look at locations, which is why locations should never be underestimated. Because if you even if you go to the real ones, if you go to the real ones first, as in, okay, if your thing is about packaging company, then go to a packaging company, see how it works, see the how it's mechanized, see how it looks. Then one has interesting conversations about how does this feel? Is this what you expected? Hmm. Is this what we want? Is this dramatic? Is this moving? Is this does this tell us anything about like if the person is working a packaging company and is utterly at a dead end of their life, is this does this express it enough? Or well, what's interesting about it is the way the machines go, then what we need to do is let's work with those bits, but let's make ourselves the other bit because it's not big enough. Let's find a warehouse and let's do something there because What's interesting about this is not only is that press making you feel like there's some kind of formula of something, a blueprint, a template, but now they are a little speck in a mass of people. So therefore, then you would then go, well, how do we, how do we do that then? And then I might go, well, let's find some reference to what that looks like. You know, Edward Brzezinski, was it the means of production, that incredible film? Oh. It's incredible. It's either Botinsky or Boyinsky, okay. an amazing film about the scale of production in the world, which just makes you go, what? So then you start feeding that into the mix. And then, of course, you've got location managers who work really closely with you all. And you're then working out, well, how could that be? Where could that be? You've also got production going, well, it can't be there because that's an overnight. You know, th there's all yeah. these things that come into play. That is frustrating when it becomes, I remember actually in Athens, we did film in this place because again, the director had incredible vision. He was like, this is a brilliant space. But actually that's not true. We were going to film there. And he said, this is a brilliant space, but it means the actors have got to walk up eight flights because it's an old hotel and it's um, derelict. It was brilliant. But at the end of the day, we found somewhere better. 
but we were literally going to do it. And that meant lifting all the equipment and the stuff and the things. And wow. I remember us having a meeting and saying to everyone, look, this is a nightmare. It's going to be a nightmare, mm. but it is worth it. And everyone agreed. They were like, yep, it's worth it. Until, of course, you found somewhere else, which is better. Yeah. You know. That's, a, that's sometimes a hard sell to do, though, isn't it? And these are the moments where you need to hold your nerve as a, I guess, the, one of the key decision makers is like, it's about what's going up on screen and people aren't going to remember. It'll be a funny anecdote in a year's time rather than <laughs> the current trauma you're going to put everyone through. If you rewind all this to kind of talk about Jan going into the barbers, if the project is not something you feel proud of, how can you ask a crew to walk up eight flights of stairs with the carrying heavy boxes? Mm. You can't, which is why what's interesting to me is if you're passionate about the project and you are absolutely on, you are going to be able to convince, I mean, I, I'm confident to a certain degree, but actually not to other degrees. But the confidence I get from working on the piece I love is that I can go into a place and go, look, can you give me this for free to use in a film? Because we've got no money and the film is brilliant and this is what it's about and come and talk to us about it and let me show you this and let me do that. And I'm not saying that's how filmmaking should be always, but if you're making a film that's brilliant and it doesn't necessarily have funding because it's not commercially obviously viable, you know, then you have to you have to think cleverly mm. about how you do it. I, I, I kind of feel like asking questions is going again to the very philosophy of what no, we're no, talking. No, no, like, no. It's too- but there's like there's some strong crafty stuff you kind of want to get like pull from your head as <laughs> yes. well. Um, yes, of course. So like I I think. So I guess with this, like, how, how close are you working with other departments when you're kind of going through all this, like, so costume and, and cinematography and, and potentially visual effects and things like this? What do these collaborations look like when they're good? Oh, nice. Well, when they're good, they've been planned really well so that you have a director of photography on the get-go. You know, Woman in Black, the second Woman in Black film that I did, the director, myself, and the DOP, George, we all were very much from the get-go, hooked up, talking about the project. You know, whenever we went to vacations, George was there. We were all together, which was brilliant because it meant that he could express very clearly that that's going to be tricky. I would find that, you know, oh, this is great. Or, oh my God, that's, you know, we're all able to feed into the pot. That is the best form of collaboration. But if if people, you know, if you've got a project and the DP is a bit of a superstar and he's on another project or she's on another project and, you know, they fly in a week before you start going, that's really hard to have a relationship with that person. I mean, mm. yes, you can send stuff through Zoom or send stuff through like whatever, but that's really hard. And then it becomes about someone kind of responding to a whole bunch of stuff they've not been party to. That's really hard for them too. I, I'm not saying that happens a lot, but you know, the, the ideal is that you have conversations from the beginning. Mm. Because I think one of the reasons that there's probably a little bit of friction between departments is that, you know, if I, if I come in and everything's been decided, that's going to make me feel very uncomfortable. I'm not going to like that. Yeah, because I guess there's like a lot of times so you're like, I, I think there's so many things which can happen, which when you get on set, you're like, oh, this is a problem because you might have wanted to shoot something in a certain way or you might have had an actor, I don't know, in, in the script, it might be like they pull something off a bedside table and they hold a look because they're looking away from someone. How big is that bedside table or dresser like? Like the height of that yeah. is going to dictate the way you shoot it. And you yeah. might have in your head a certain <laughs> height or saw a prop, you're like, this is beautiful. This is great. This is what it's going to be. And then the director gets on the day and like, this fucks up the whole plan. Yeah. Have, have you got any sort of anecdotes around that? Or like, um, how do you mitigate that? Mm. I remember on a set 
talking talking with the director, but not about huge details. And I wonder if this has changed over the years. Because if I think about it, the trust that was involved was massive. Unless I've remembered that wrong, I just don't remember it being such a kind of forensic thing where you go, well, this is the finish, that's the this, mm. that's the this, these are the props, this is the thing. And again, I wonder if that's kind of sort of somehow seeped in from adverts because adverts, you show every single thing on a board. Nothing doesn't go through scrutiny. So, um, and I remember them getting to the set and it was very, very minimal because it was essentially about a man who had separated from his wife. And I remember having a conversation with my dad, just, you know, wasn't like my dad was the character and I wasn't, it wasn't about this, but it was a memory I had where I'd said to my dad, what do you like in the house? You know, you live with, with my mom and our family. And he went, I don't like anything. And I said, what do you mean, dad? I said, well, we said, I like my reclining leather chair. He had a Swedish reclining leather chair from the 70s. And he said, and I like my stereo. I said, so if you were to, if there was a fire and you were to be able to run, those are the things you take. He went, yeah. I said, what about all these? said, they're your mums, they're mums things. And I thought about this. It was really surprising to me because I'd always thought somehow is their shared aesthetic. It wasn't. So then I was thinking about this character and thinking, well, okay, he's separated. He's now got a new place. What's he taken? And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if he had just taken a reclining chair and his stereo and, of course, his boxes of stuff, you know, paperwork. And so this is how I'd done the set. And I got a call from someone, an AD maybe, and they said, could you go to the set? Because the actor would really like to discuss the set. And I thought, fuck, I think it was the first shooting day. And I went and discussed it. And they asked me questions about why there was nothing in the set, you know, and whatnot. And I explained why. And uh, it was totally fine. Hmm. And that was absolutely totally fine, you know. Because I think they were worried that it wasn't thought through. I think it was 100% thought through. Mm. And I just felt like, you know, to me, this is not about someone surrounded by the comfort of love and a home and relationships and family. They are a person that is now chosen a different way. And this is now going to be the dark night of the soul. You know, this is going to be a difficult process. And this is the only time we see them with any discomfort or regret or difficulty because they function. The, the rest of it, we see them functioning. So for me, it was interesting. It wasn't overplayed. It, well, it was totally in the keeping of the house and whatnot. You know, we put a wall in of wood and we put various things in to, you know, make it just a bit darker, mm. a bit more like this is a, a place of contemplation. Mm. It's like you're describing downloading. And so it, it was nearly, I was really nervous. I was like, oh. God, I hope I did the right thing here, but it felt absolutely right. Thank you. Jacqueline, question I've got. Um, it's a really broad question, but, you know, you've, 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 you've worked on so many wonderful projects and with, you know, many great directors. So what in your kind of experience and understanding is makes a good director? Um, gosh, I think that's a really difficult question. I don't think I know the answer to that. I mean, I can say the qualities that I think are amazing, you know, like I think, gosh, they're all so different as well. I, I mean, openness, but then not some people are more open. Than, I mean, openness, uh, vision, communication is really important that sometimes, you know, people communicate in different ways. Hmm. I don't know. I think, I think vision, I mean, what makes a good director? I think vision. And so it's interesting what you both have been saying, you know, like, 
But then we're talking about artists. I mean, what makes great artists? Vision. So then what's vision? Mm. Well, vision is a way of seeing something. It's a way of looking at a situation and seeing a truth to it that maybe others might not see or understanding a, a component of it that might be hidden. It's a, the vision to, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question, but mm. the only thing I can say that feels remotely authentic is... But I like that, though. I, I like what you're saying there. That's, that's really interesting about, about, about the vision and the vision not just necessarily being what's in your head, but the truth of... And that can also mm. be a critical, bitter comment. And it can also be a love and a... And a care and it can also be a kind of like mm. a a humorous ridiculous absurd response it can be many versions but it's definitely vision and i think vision comes when you're not afraid like it's, it's all interrelates doesn't it it's like if you don't listen to what you are and you don't allow mm. yourself to discover what you are and how you feel about the world you know what is your darkest point who is it who are you at your darkest what are your worst 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 secrets you know it's like isn't all this interesting to discover? Because if I if I understand that mm. my fear is not being loved or my, you know, then I'm going to understand a little bit more about what might make me want to respond fast with an idea rather than wait mm. and be confident to let something percolate. You know, it, all of these things are part of it. Do you know, the, uh, Marcus, you remember this, that there was some sort of study recently done and they said that, 50% of the population, or it's maybe 60% of the population, don't have an inner, mon inner monologue. Oh, yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and we're talking about this, and is it because we're in artistic bubbles and we speak about this stuff, but actually the general majority of people, they don't think like we do. They, and, and, and they're not like that because they might be, they, they might be, they might be science-based in, in how they are and how they, how, what their outlook on the world is. How many people actually listen to the stillness of themselves? And what that is, I, I'm going to sound older, but maybe when you when you get when you get older, you kind of become more. You know what? I'm a bit more chilled out. I, I, you know, I see life like this. You know, you're a bit more wiser, and then maybe then you start listening more to yourself and who you are, and, and being more comfortable with that version of yourself. And I very much draw on that for my art, very much. So. I think as you get older, what I'm finding anyway, I'm only just like just like in my phase. I think a lot of it is the damage which school did. Not that I had a particularly rough time, but just the conditioning of it and like the strong social pressure and contracts you buy into just from being there. It probably took until I was like 25, 26 for that to begin to fall away. And then after that, you're kind of then on a path of discovery of like, okay, who actually am I? And then from there, it's like, that's when you kind of figure out who you are or begin to like, I'm, I'm kind of doing it through art and stuff and interrogating myself. But I guess mm. um, you guys probably have a greater sense of having, yeah, I've, I've gone through that process. It's, whereas, yeah, I can't imagine not having thoughts in my head. <laughs> like you'd be like, I imagine you'd just be like emotionally driven and reactive to everything rather than thinking about your place in things. I mean, it would be nice to have a break. Like if I could turn that on and off, that'd be great, but. I mean, you know, I think as human beings, aren't we all facing, whether we're facing it or turning away from it, our ultimate death? And that's mm. the one thing that makes us all is we are all going to die. We don't know when or how, but we are all going to mm. die. And I feel like most great art and most great, yeah, I mean, most great writing is about that and all that spiritual, you know, all the religious practices are. I mean, like there's, 
is it maybe Zen monks? I think it's either Zen or Zen Buddhist monks. They practice with their own coffin in their small cell, you know, where they stay. And I feel like there's something mm. to me about, I don't know if I know, I think discovering who you are changes in your life. Mm. And I think, you know, it's hilarious. You think you're old at 30. That's lovely. But, you know, I just think, I think you're right about school. And I think, I also think family. I mean, obviously, depending on people's mm. families, you know, your family is the first system that you, you know, bump into. And that system can be difficult. And then the first, you know, the way out of that first mm. system is actually for me going to art school. So that was absolutely why I made that choice. It's like, I need to get out of this system because otherwise I can see my trajectory. And actually, funny enough, when my mum died only two years ago, not even that really, but I remember feeling a kind of sense of strange release from the sort of pressure of that, of sort of living up to what people want and expectation and, you know, and I think you're right. It is a process of discovery, but I do think it shifts and changes because, yeah, because life shifts and changes. And, you know, it's a bit like we've been talking about in terms of being creative. It's like, okay, you can't shoot here. There is no quarry. What can we do? Well, okay, let's do that. You know, let's do it instead as a top shot. We're going to do it here. Let's blow a whole load of dust around. Let's make it all very difficult to see. You know, okay, let's do something else. You know, but yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I, and I feel like in terms of inner voices and stuff, I feel like it is also important to have quietness. And I think you know, what's interesting about Buddhism, not that I am a Buddhist or know so much about it, but what I do really enjoy is the process of meditation and quietening to allow, it's not like you're not thinking and you're stopping the thoughts, you're just spectating them. Hmm. And sort of seeing the craziness of the inner world in order to just let it settle. And kind of that's really hmm. interesting because to a certain extent, to attach to my thoughts as me is just as bad as attaching to, you know, that SUV and saying that's me, you know. There's something really interesting about this. And um Yeah. And also in terms of the the voice of the filmmaker, you know, like, you know, the filmmaker being the auteur, the god, you know, I, I all of this is interesting to me. Maybe it's because I'm older. I'm just a bit like, oh, okay, all right, yeah. okay. That's really interesting, especially like touching on your your tourship because I, I guess you've worked with a really big range of directors. So you've mentioned like Jan Demange and then you've got William Oldroyd, I think like from theatre background. Yes. And I think Evie Crow, you worked on a short yeah. play, right? Um, and also of course, like Yorgos Lanthimos, all super individual people, all different backgrounds and stuff. So is there any like differences or commonalities in the way they work or how you communicate or how you understand their vision and create tone together? and? Yeah, it'd be cool to get your perspective on that. Do you know I would say it's funny because I wonder if I wonder if there is something which is about a kind of trust. You know, there's almost like a kind of creative like I don't know, maybe maybe I'm wrong saying this. You'd have to ask them. But I think with Will you know, with Will, with Yorgos, with like Remy, there's sort of a trust. Mm. And in a way, isn't it about developing some kind of relationship? Like I remember on the lobster I remember thinking, well, it's very funny. It's ridiculously funny. And I remember at one point, I can't remember it's me or someone else. I was kind of going, well, this must have been me. I remember saying, oh, this would be funny to do it like that. And I remember you just being like, no way. And I remember thinking, oh, no, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. The world, 
is a subtly toned world, but it's not overtly funny. So the, mm. the, the comedy is in the absurdity of the script, not in necessarily the slapstick visual. And so actually it became about retracting, retracting the visual, kind of really sucking it as minimal as possible and using the language of hotels. In fact, that became a sort of saving grace of going, the language of hotels is so mad. You know, the idea of putting images only of flowers in a hotel where, in fact, I'd stayed in a hotel where there were two images of the same thing. And you're like, what? Mm. That's the same picture. It's like, well, who decided that? It's like, well, because they have no interest in the art at all. And to them, it looked like, who cares? So there was a hotel room with two yeah. identical pictures in it. That was in America. And I was like, that is madness. So I kind of love the idea of the playfulness of the absurdity of what we are. So, mm. what, so, so to add to vision, I would say there's an understanding. There's a kind of, there's an understanding of what we are as humans. There's a playfulness of the kind of deconstruction of what it is to be a human. And, you know, I, I think so many people are interested in that. Like, there's a whole world of coincidences, photos that are about coincidences. And they're beautiful because they're about seeing the moment that goes like that and then it's gone, where this, a crazy thing happens and then it's gone. And I think that is an eye, isn't it? People talk about having an eye. And I do think those directors all have an eye. They have an eye to something whether it's detail or relationships or absurdity or something or and do you still have like space to bring yourself to it because obviously you've been hired for a reason and same mm. with that personal experience of what your dad would take to place in in the room yeah. like possessions wise you're clearly like a storyteller as well so like is it a case of you have to like pitch ideas or you, how do you kind of communicate your own vision to to these directors and what do you bring yourself to projects i mean i think the key thing is to start with a script isn't it and we all see things in a different way. And so I think it's interesting that a costume designer might mention something specific about something that would really help. Like if there was, uh, you know, if the scene is in the rain and they have a jersey that really absorbs water and becomes really heavy, is that interesting? You know, I don't know. If, if you know, I'm sure there's many more subtle things that a costume designer would say, but, you know, they are then in control of what could they bring knowing with their knowledge of costume and stuff and history and things and colors and stuff and, you know, that's interesting, isn't it? And that's in a way that, you know, I mean, my brain is only one brain. If I work with your brains, I've now got two more brains. And so that's amazing. So not only do you have your neural connections, but we've now got three. And that's going to start very different neural connections happening. And that's exciting because otherwise, essentially what I'm doing is if you put me under pressure and you say, come on, with an idea now. My brain will just go, oh, filing cabinet, filing cabinet. Oh, this one, we tried that in 1987, it worked. Right, okay, here's this thing idea. But mm. that's not interesting. And you know, the, at the end of the day, of course I can deliver whatever you want. Deliver, Ugh, like Amazon. I can deliver whatever you want. <laughs> and I can do it well. I'm proficient and technically able. But don't I also want to be pushed into finding something too? And so for me, when I work with a director that will push me, that's such a nice feeling. They don't want to feel like they're teaching me and how annoying they've got to now take responsibility. But I think it's exciting to agree, subtly, we're both going to find a language for this. Hmm. But, you know, there might be something you discover. Like, I remember a woman in black, there was a sequence, it was a horror sequence, and I said, you know how kids play with wool? <laughs> no kids play with wool now. But Anyway, historically, right? Historically in the Victorian era or whatever, turn of the century, kids would have done cat's cradle, right? 
Yeah. And that's a thing with string and you do all sorts of things. And I don't know, up to the 70s, they did that. And I thought, wouldn't it be great establishing that that game could have happened, that this kid finds a ball of wool, but the wool is now going through the house. So the kid starts as a game thinking it's a game. She's rolling the wool up, but what ends up happening is it has been set up by the evil menace of the house and she gets murdered. And I thought, you know, that to me is visually interesting. It wasn't in the script, but I thought, what a lovely way to follow the kid. Rather than the kid just mysteriously finds the murdering presence, mm. now you've got the idea of tension and drama. It's like, is it? Is it going to be a murder? What is it? You know? And did you pitch that? And the director went with it? Yeah. yeah. It's That's more like great. a what if. Could we? Could it be? Might it be? But I think the key thing is to be open to think, well, what if? Could it be? Is there something stronger? That's the important thing is why I was saying about the writing aspect. You reach a point where you can't do any more. You reach that point where you need to take it through pre-production so that you yeah. can have ideas like that being thrown at you to make everything better. And you can only do so much yourself. You can't dig into every moment. Like an actor is going to dig into their character like in a way you can't. Like a production designer, you're going to dig into all these action props and moments in a way you can't possibly conceive. And so that's like a beautiful thing. And I think it's a good note for the people listening to this to, to take that into account is what everyone around you can bring. Like once you have an idea and you've kind of got it to a place where you're happy to have the conversations and yeah. it's an open conversation for everyone to bring everything to it, to, to make the strongest And also, work you know, knowing when the right time for that conversation is. And like, it might not be a group conversation. It might be just, you know, you might need to calibrate it. So you go, right, I'm going to have that conversation with a designer, that's two people. Then I'm going to do that with a costume designer. I'm not going to make a free-for-all because that also is not, that's not necessarily beneficial for everyone. You know, yeah. it's nice that they feel led by the director. That's really important. I think one of the things that, that, that I, not struggled with, but on this on, on this last short that I did, I, I did allow it to discover, like I kept get asking this question, what's colour palette, what's the colour palette? And I was like, I don't know what the colour palette is because I've not, it's not something I've, I've, I've thought about because... I don't want to say, well, red means this or green means this. You know, I, I, I kind of worked with the production designer to pull that out because I was like, I might be wrong in that. I don't know. That's um, okay. I mean, what? and also sometimes it's not necessarily about the colour palette. more like, what's the emotion? Mm, mm. What do I want people to feel about this character? Or what does the character feel? What is, if you were to, and then this is like a nutty thing to say, but if you were to, like, is the character visible? Are they are they not visible? I mean, what's their skin tone? I mean, there are many things that come into why you choose a colour. Hmm. And I mean, I suppose, you know, sometimes like I meant being even with Top Boy, I remember thinking, well, it's quite interesting that the estate is so much like you were saying about school being something you had to process. Hmm. I like the idea that the estate, which had lots of blues on it, blues and pale yellows, I thought, what if the estate is so pervasive, it's somehow, I'm into every room, it's pervaded everything. Not only is the exterior mm. of town planning and construction, which has made people live in these ways, but what if it was in everywhere? What if there was just the palette outside is the only palette you're allowed? Just to somehow heighten the language of the estate. Mm. You know, that that's kind of, you can also, I feel like one can play with why one is using colours. Mm-hmm. And that could be just subtle for you to know, but actually it just gives you a logic as to why there is a colour. It doesn't always have to be super meaningful, but I think it has to come from somewhere. Mm. 
And so I quite like the idea that the estate is so dramatic that that, that you restrict the color palette and it is to do with the exterior world. I think we'll just kind of like round out the, the chat with a question based around the future. So I think you touched on AI earlier. I think AI as a tool is has a lot of potential to help creatives. And also I think we're seeing uh, with virtual production, I guess VFX becoming more prominent in workflows and things like that. How do you see the future of production design and see yourself fitting within within that space going forward? I mean, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I suppose if we, if we think that we understand each other, if we just go, well, that's what we are, then of course AI can do my job 100%. Because if you're talking about virtual productions, it will just go, this is. But, you know, I don't know if I believe that because I've just recently been researching a project and I found the internet has become very small. And even putting the name of people I'm looking for, as in photographers and or theatre directors and or whatever, putting their actual name and the name of the photograph that I have in a book so that I can get it quicker than just scanning it, mm. it doesn't exist. So I'm like, what does that mean? Does that mean the photo doesn't exist? The photographer doesn't exist? No, it just means that that hasn't been put on the internet. It's not deemed as interesting, worthy, popular. I don't know. Mm. So if the, if AI is to, if its data is scanning the internet for information, then I would say the internet is not a place that is necessarily free. It's not a necessarily a place that's democratic. Mm. You know, you try, I mean, I remember having an interview ages ago for a project I did, and I literally could not find people of color in the way I wanted them to be. I could mm. find, you know, man in suit, I could find sexualized images, I could find lots of people working out, but I couldn't find arty, beautiful shot of someone concerned sitting on a bed. Don't put any of those things into the internet and then put person of color because you know what you're going to get. Mm. And so I took to the interview these images and I said to the director himself, person of color, I said, you're going to have to imagine these people are black because I can't find these images. And he laughed his head off and he said, do you know what? I once joked about it. And I thought maybe I could take a Pantone pen and literally Pantone over the image and go, there you go. That's sort of an approximation of what I'm trying to find. Now, if you want nuance and poetry, you might not get that from AI. You might need to refer to a human to try and imbue something with that. So, mm. you know, if, if people want stuff with dragons and breasts and tankards and, you know, fine. That's great. And if that's what people want more than anything else and another crime drama and another thing, that's okay. Um, maybe AI will do it better without the kind of jaded, oh, not another one, that humans might have. But I still think that the beauty of a human is that they are flawed. And I don't think you can program flaw. And that's to a certain extent. You can imitate a flaw, I guess. You can write an algorithm which will create a flaw, but it won't be coming from anywhere as we were yeah. saying, somewhat truthful, I guess. I mean, who am I to say this? Who am I to say this? But as a human, I kind of look at the portals and the streamers and all that, and I think, well, do we need Series 8 and Series 12 and Series 15? Do we need to have Play Next? And do we need to sit for hours? I mean, of course, we don't need to. We can choose not to. But there's something about that formula that almost feels like AI. Mm. If we're talking about AI generating this kind of formula or formulaic parody of the thing, but there's, ter you know, there's restrictions in this because if people want to make so much money out of stuff and they're battling for audience, we're encouraged to just be these passive consumers slowly reclining in our cinema seat that we bought from DFS on HP. Mm. 
Mm. You know, getting our delivery delivered, watching a tiny screen, being the god. I don't know. Is that is that a good thing for us? No. You basically become like a dustbin. Whereas, like, <laughs> there comes a point where you get full. You need to kind of find a, a way to spit some of it back out, like an amalgamation of whatever it is. And that's what yep. being creative is, I guess. I was going to say the conditioning that we also have of of um, transaction, because, you know, I, I think about this often, that literally everything is a cost other than oxygen. Everything. You have to pay for something to get something, no matter what it is. The, 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 the floor that I'm stood on, everything has a cost attached to it. And yeah. we're driven by that, like... I, I remember when we did the documentary, Marcus, I found it really liberating because we didn't have pressures of X, Y, and Z. Oh, we, just, great. We, just, we just went and just made whatever spoke to our, you know, from, from us. Yeah. Like, even before we got on this, I was speaking to my, to my parents and they was like, oh, so are you, are you making money? Is there scope to make money from the podcast? Can you monetize it? So I was like, <laughs> honestly, I don't even want to think about it. Like, we're doing it for the thing. We're doing it for the learning and like, we're throwing it out and that's we, I kind of want to protect that and knowing that like all of that stuff will come eventually but for now it's just about but you know what this. I think it's really interesting I thought about this a lot because a lot of folk contact me and I try my very best to meet and certainly speak to pretty much all of them I kind of love the idea of somehow that there is some I mean you know dogma has dogma right well dogma was dogma I kind of feel like what what you're doing and this thing here, I'm not sure what it is, but there's something educational about it. There is something that is almost like a film school. And I feel like, wow, wait, I think I want to go to film school. I thought I don't want to go to a building. I don't need a building because Mm. it's about the conversations and it's about the making. And I feel like there could be something really interesting about a kind of film school where no one has got their eye on the prize. They've got that eye on the project. They want to do the project. They want to learn from the project more than they care about whatever it is. And the, the given is, the given is, well, there's probably no money in it, you know. But what there is, is an experience and learning. It's a bit like, you know, I don't really like going on holiday. I don't see the point. Hmm. But actually, if you were to say to me, do you want to make a film as your holiday? I'd be like, yes. Hmm. You know, that's, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely that. And that's what we kind of say is that like, if you want to get anywhere, it's about building momentum and you do that from not putting pressure on the thing. And basically what your professor was saying, rip it up and move on. Yeah. Like that's literally it. So yeah. Uh, thank you for this, for this thank lovely you. little uh, chat about art and life. I think it's been, it's been really, really illuminating. My soul feels enriched, Jacqueline. So thank you. <laughs> oh, me too. I've really enjoyed chatting. I feel like we haven't talked about anything structural, but you know, people can Google that. That's the tragedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What does um, a production designer do? You can Google it. You know, like... they can ask. They can ask AI. Do the work. Ask ChatGPT. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, oh, I'd like to answer. do that. <laughs> So we do have one final section, which is just, an, it's called Nugget of the Week. I'm sure within this, there's a whole bunch of inspiration, but it's basically because we take in so much content from all over, like various mediums. So we like to ask the people we bring on, uh, what has inspired you this week? Okay, I'll tell you what inspired me. So my dad, he's lived with this family home. He's obviously the home where my mum was and our family was. And so dad is, you know, considering moving out into a small bungalow and all this kind of stuff. So we're going through the process of throwing things out and blah, 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 and, you know, taking stuff to 
all over the place. Anyway, I'd called this local guy, this local bookshop owner. He said, I'll come round and have a look because my dad has got some old books from when he's 88 and he's got some books that he bought in the 40s, 50s, you know. You know, and this guy like, wow, they're brilliant. Yeah, there's some things I don't know where they've come from. But anyway, what inspiring nugget of the week is the guy sat there and he told me, I said, how did you get into selling secondhand books? And he said, well, I was teaching physics and chemistry. And I said, yeah, he said, you know, but in physics and philosophy, he ended up teaching. And he said, I just thought, he said, I walked past this shop that was opening and I saw it said bookshop opening soon. And I feel like every day he walked past on his way to work. He was envious. He just got more and more envious every day. He was like, God, look at that. The shells went in and the books went in, the lighting, the this, the that, sign painting on the thing. And he just went, oh my God. And it happened over a period of about six months. So the point where the guy had finally set it up and he was like, I know what I want to do. So he had some connection in Bedford, which my dad is, and there was a shop being sold. And he just thought about me, he thought, I'm going to it. And he basically was in the kind of boom or bust days and got a mortgage. God knows how he got mortgage and got that now. And he basically bought this building with a tiny flat above which he lived in and he set up a bookshop. And you know what? His face, you see nothing like his face. It was filled. It was illuminated. It was bursting with love. Hmm. And he basically said, do you know what? You can't live life without taking risks. And I looked at him and I thought, have you been sent? You're not really looking at our books. It's all like you're like a guardian angel who's been sent to me to say that. And he went, whatever it is in your life, take the risk. You have to take risks. And I thought, what a joy. And I looked at his face and I thought, you have lived a life. If you were to die now, mm. you wouldn't regret anything. Because you would if you were still teaching physics and philosophy, walking past the now, now very busy bookshop. But you took a risk. Never saw it. Sold books at fairs, but he'd never had a bookshop. And I thought that is absolutely incredible. I love that. So I think that's really nice. So risk taking. Great. Uh, that makes mine and yours seem quite futile, Oz. Uh, what's yours? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had nothing had you not come around today. So thank God he came. That's how life happens. It's, it's, it's Greta Gerwig. She's done a. She's done oh. this video with Letterboxd. And she talks about 32 films that kind of were on her watch list when she made Barbie. And they're really, really interesting. And, you know, she talks a lot about mm. sort of like old American musicals. She talks about, you were saying you were a scenic painter, and she talks about a lot of that because, you know, Barbie's got that in it. Uh, and it's just really good. She only spends, like, maybe a couple of sentences on each one of why they influenced Barbie. And it was just really interesting. I think they're, they're all from, like the 30s, 40s, 50s, other work as well. I just found it interesting. I found it really interesting of how of how she kind of processed those films and put it into how she created Barbie. That's nice. And Marcus? Yeah, mine is, is um, if you haven't had your fill of Jacqueline or, or Quellen at this point, it's actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's your interview uh, with Beefer Insider. Uh, so the lobster of Jacqueline Abrahams. So like if, if you're interested in a bigger breakdown of that, um, that interview there, I think it's, it's, it's great. And there's some really, really good sound bites in there. Um, I think one in particular which stood out for me is, you may or may not remember it, but you said, I don't believe I have an original voice at all. But what I do believe is that I have an original way of curating things. And I think that's what we all have. And I was like, that's 
really, really mm. beautiful um, as a as a I thought. think I still agree with that. Yeah, I think I've forgotten about that. Mm. Yeah. Curation is a nice thing. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. And you create your crew as well, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You curate everything and that's kind of lovely. Yeah. I've got a drive after this, so I'm really looking forward to just reflecting on our discussion, Jacqueline. There's a lot of there's a lot of food for thought. Yeah, me here. too. I feel mm. like I've learned a lot. I know. I know. I feel optimistic <laughs> yeah. about the future with you yeah. guys driving. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, we have to like hopefully not get beat up by life, and maybe we can have another chat in like ten years, and then we can. Oh my god, <laughs> that would be hilarious. See if we still feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> You can chat to my AI-generated persona. <laughs> You'd have it all sorted out. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. And just before we go, can, is there anywhere people can find you on socials if, if you're active at all, if you'd want to share? I that? don't have any um, social media. Sorry. Well, well just keep just keep an eye on the beautiful, beautiful work that you'll be doing. Um, <laughs> yes, we all need to live our yeah, lives real yes. time a little bit more and document it as it's happening. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. It was really fun. So that concludes the episode. Next week, we're going to be joined by another exciting guest, I'm sure, as ever. So follow socials to find out who we'll be having on. And if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the director's take at outlook.com. And we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large, and we'll do our best to tell you. We want to shape this as a resource for you. So do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the director's take podcast. And also on Twitter, or X which is at directors take and also leave us a review please leave us a review we need lots of them it really really helps on whichever platform you get your podcast from and I think that's it so until next time keep learning keep failing and keep the faith